Hello everyone, and welcome back to Those Days Will Never Return, Amateur History Lessons from the Public Domain. My name is Amy, and I will be your host. Sorry for the delay between episodes, life just beat like that sometimes. And before we get started, I've got a couple uh, little things I want to talk about before we jump into Chapter 1 of 18 Months in the War Zone. First off, I wanted to share that I now have a website, thosedayswillneverreturn.com. It is a site where I'm just going to try to keep track of episodes and the resources I use uh, to do research for each episode. So uh, each post will have a list of links, basically, to things I'm referencing. Um, That way, if you're interested, you can look those up and get more information. Next up, I have not a corrections corner, more of an additions corner uh, since last episode. I did a little more research on Dean Hole that was mentioned in the introduction. This is, uh, I realized, a reference to Dean Samuel Hole. He was the Dean of Rochester, which is the head of the chapter of canons at Rochester Cathedral. He was an English Anglican priest, author, and horticulturalist in the late 19th century and the early part of the 20th. He wrote and published multiple books, and his memoir, Then and Now, was his last book published in 1901. He died shortly thereafter in 1904. So this was who uh, Major General Turner was uh, paraphrasing in the introduction that we discussed last time. Finally, the biggest change that will be happening is that instead of myself reading the works aloud, I will be using the LibriVox recordings since it's just going to save me time and effort since they're already recorded, I won't have to uh, stress about pronunciations or anything like that. It's just going to save me time and hopefully I can get these episodes out on a more regular schedule. Um, The recordings are also in the public domain, so there's no issues there. They have a disclaimer at the beginning of each recording. And yeah, I think that'll just make things a little more smoother. So just to give some context, Kate Finzi's War Diary is split into books. Each book is a year, and then each chapter within that book is a month within that year. There are, at times, you will hear the narrator say, um, like, Lady Blank, or give just the initials of a person's name. This is based on the writing where the name was purposefully, um, you know, edited so that it wasn't calling out a specific name, just for privacy reasons. So that if you hear someone mention something blank or whatever, just know that in the text itself, it is a, like a blank line or a dashed line. So that specific information isn't actually given within the text. And finally, once again, just a content warning for the things described in this book can be graphic and violent in nature. Specifically, starting with the October 27th diary entry is when uh, there are some graphic descriptions. So just keep that in mind as you're listening, and if you need to give yourself a break or stop listening, that is totally understandable. Now let's jump into chapter one of 18 Months in the War Zone, narrated by the lovely Marianne. I will occasionally be stopping the narration and saying, okay, let's pause to give context and research, and then I will say, okay, let's continue to jump back in with Marianne's narration. Now let's begin. Chapter 1 of 18 Months in the War Zone by Kate John Frenzy. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Book One, nineteen fourteen, as it was in the beginning. Chapter One, October nineteen fourteen. October twenty first, London. It was not without a sense of relief that we watched the hands of the station clock move on to the stroke of six, heard the train doors slam, and cast a last look at the anxious little group of friends who clustered round the carriage doors to bid us farewell and Godspeed. To be quite frank, their cheering savoured somewhat of mourning and of much admonition. Were we not the tattered remnants of a once flourishing Red Cross detachment? whose energies and equipment alike had been left behind at the enforced evacuation of Ostend. Were we not about to face all kinds of undreamed-of perils? So they whispered to us. But as we relapsed into our seats, to the accompaniment of a cheery chorus of ragtimes from the extensive repertoire of the recruits in a neighboring carriage, our hearts beat hard with trepidation and anticipation of the great unknown. After all, who were we amongst the countless thousands clamoring to get out to the scene of action? Merely two Englishwomen, of none too much experience and no too great age, whom it might please fate to carry into the scene of action, there to play the smallest of parts, and to be vouchsafed an insight into the vagaries of war. Southampton. It was a clear, still, moonlit night when we reached Southampton, the docks silent and darkened. Outside many ambulance wagons awaited their turn to be loaded. The hotel to which we had been recommended had been commandeered as an embarkation office. Moreover, Mr. N., the clergyman who was to have met us and finished the journey with us, failed to turn up. So, after passport formalities, we went straight on board. All we carried by way of luggage was one small hand valise apiece, containing, besides changes of underwear, the regulation Red Cross caps, aprons, dresses, the uniform so effective en masse, so unbecoming to the individual. Okay, let's pause. So, some brief information on the British Red Cross, which Finzi was a member of. It was a volunteer-based organization. Following the start of the Great War in 1914, the British Red Cross joined forces with the Order of St. John Ambulance, to form the Joint War Committee and Joint War Organization. They pooled resources and formed Voluntary Aid Detachments, or VADs, with members trained in first aid, nursing, cookery, hygiene, and sanitation. These detachments all worked under the protection of the Red Cross, working in hospitals, rest stations, work parties, and supply centers. The Joint War Organization also aided assistance at the front line, supplying the first motorized ambulances to the battlefields, which were significantly more efficient than the horse-drawn ambulances they replaced. It was active in setting up centers for recording the wounded and missing. Red Cross volunteers searched towns, villages, and hospitals where fighting had occurred, noting names of the missing, the injured, and the dead. This formed the basis of the International Message and Tracing Service, which still runs today. So Finzi describes her experiences working in a field hospital in France. 
She also later talks about difficulties with the VAD nurses as well as difficulties with contracts with the Red Cross. So Finzi's first diary entry is from October 21st, 1914, when she was in London leaving to head out to go to France. October 21st, 1914 was a Wednesday. The first Battle of Ypres had just started on the 19th of October and would last until November 22nd of 1914. Ypres is 56 miles away from where Finzi was stationed in Boulogne as the crow flies. I'll discuss more about the Battle of Ypres uh, later in the episode. Finzi also mentions the city of Ostend. It is a coastal city and municipality located in the province of West Flanders in the Flemish region of Belgium and is 66 miles from Boulogne. Ostend was occupied by German forces and used as an access point to the sea for submarines and other light naval forces for much of the duration of World War I. As a consequence, the port was subjected to two naval assaults by the Royal Navy. So right away we can see that Finzi will be near the front lines and, and the types of battles that were happening not terribly far from where she was stationed and the stress that I'm sure was always present and, and the fear that that constant threat of German battles and, and invasions and attacks had. And she discusses that later uh, in later in later entries as well. But it is an interesting start to this war diary of this woman setting out to another country to help her her people and and the allies and the things she had to see because of that. And with that, let's continue. October 22nd, SS blank, 8 a.m. The cabins were nearly all taken for the officers of the Irish regiment crossing on the boat, so we passed a more or less restless night in the saloon. As the stewardess said, we like to give the men the best of everything. Who knows when they will next sleep in a bed? It makes one choke to see these fine strapping fellows going out so cheerfully to meet their fate. It is only then that one ceases to think of war as a great game, and sees it as a great slaughter. When we set sail the mysterious blue, herald of dawn, was over all, but we are entering Avra Arbor in a sea that is black and dreary and full of forebodings. The Avra. The post office here might be in Finsbury, the cablegram window in Leadenhall Street, for Avra is full of British Tommies in their smart new khaki and gilt numerals and badges, and they walk up and down the streets in twos and threes, very much at home, or separately, equally lost. When we landed at Avra, the Reverend E. N., our khaki-clad parson, joined us, and, having deposited our luggage at the station and lunched, we wended our way to the British Consulate and the British and French Red Cross offices, in the hope of gleaning some news of the rest of our party, who seemed to have vanished off the face of the globe. Our Red Cross uniform carries with it a strange mixture of respect and suspicion. Respect for the noble symbol we bear, suspicion on account of the many unlicensed people of somewhat doubtful repute, who have flooded the country since the outbreak of war, perpetrating many indiscretions, opening many uncalled-for charities, all under the name of the Red Cross, with which, 
ten chances to one they have no connection at all to us however everybody is so kind and courteous and our parson being a tall white-haired man of military bearing and in appearance much more like a general than a sky pilot commands universal respect and salutes we decided to spend a night at avra and call early for news at the consulate and it was then that my modicum of french and savoir-faire in the ways of hotels and hotel proprietors stood us in good stead for the rest of the party knew no word of french and appeared never before to have travelled abroad at the consulate we came across lady blank one of the women we are seeking and who was supposed to be seeking us as we entered the room a familiar voice rang out in the name of the belgian government you can do anything and we found ourselves face to face with the chic little woman who charming though she may be at a london at home is we fear liable to give our allies a false impression of english women in wartime she has already courted notoriety quite successfully in belgium where she would appear at the most busy moment in the wards with a smile and may i see round your hospital only to be followed by her pressman with a camera seeing she has never to our knowledge done a day's work in the wards we are growing tired of her portraits in the daily papers and weekly journals lady blank rendering valuable aid to a severely wounded belgian or a war heroine who is giving her services at the front we retired early but the incessant sounds of coming and going made sleep impossible to me as the moon peeped through the open window on to the restless form of my companion i crept out of bed and knelt by the embrasure she looked very young with her halo of fair hair and for the first time i realized how utterly alone we were it is odd how quickly people come into one's life nowadays become the most important factor of existence and meteor-like pass out of one's ken leaving nothing but a fast dimming memory to prove how large they once loomed on the horizon after all war or no war we are absolute strangers of different interests different education different social standing yet for weal or woe our lot is cast together only for a moment these thoughts assailed me then the bigness of the great game in which we are to play our parts drove all little personal feelings away october twenty fourth rouen we arrived yesterday in the wild goose chase after the mrs c who wired for us and was to have given us employment and are installed at a little hotel perched on the top of the hill from the windows of which we can enjoy the old garden gorgeous in its autumn tints of brown gold and green there being an over-sufficient number of well-equipped hospitals here as in avre we have not bothered to inquire after work but the rev e n has gone on to paris and so we spend the day enjoying the sights of rouen of the beauties of the gothic cathedral of st ouen of the smartness of our tommies of the less solid but striking lithe and business-like looking french soldiers in their historic and treasured red trousers and blue coats there's much to be said yet it is the incongruity of the cosmopolitan crowd that is most noteworthy dusky zouaves in wide pantaloons and brilliant coatees are to be seen on all sides mostly with bandaged limbs be it noted and alongside swarthy indian musulmans clad in khaki and topped with turbans side by side with them go interpreters in mufti scottish soldiers in tartans and covered kilts little french girls walk past with ramc badges and numerals pinned across their shawls army nurses in grey and red the usual crowd of dark french women in their sombre weeds watching the seething mass of humanity on the quay 
the marching soldiers, the footsore, homeless refugees, the motley crowd culled from every conceivable race and every quarter of the globe, it seems as if the powers above had decided to abolish the distinction between east and west, black and white, and weld together one race to combat the oncoming Germans. For surely we are pitted against a foe so strong in physique and so brave and cunning that many years of strenuous training and thrift will be required to fit the united races to withstand his onslaught. Okay, let's pause. So, Finzi mentions being in La Havre. La Havre is a city in the Normandy, Normandy region of northern France. Its name means the harbor or the port, and it is about 150 miles south of Boulogne, which is where Finzi was ultimately stationed. During the war, the Belgian government was forced to flee during the German occupation, and they set up an installation on the outskirts of La Havre. The city served as a base for the Triple Entente, or allies of the Russian, French, and British forces. It especially served as a base for British warships. 1.9 million British soldiers passed through the port of La Havre. Finzi makes notes of this when she compares La Havre to London because of the large British army presence, noting how she might as well be back in London with the amount of British Tommies that are in the city. In the October 24th entry, when she and her companions are in Rouen, Finzi mentions seeing, quote, dusky zouaves. These Zouaves were a class of light infantry regiments of the French army, and they were among the most decorated unit of the French army. From the very beginning of World War I, Zouave regiments and detached battalions saw extensive service on the Western Front, so it would make sense that Finzi would see them when she arrived in France. In the same entry, she mentions seeing Indian Muslims. Muslim was is an archaic or a foreign language term for people who are Muslim. The Indian Army during World War I contributed a large number of divisions and independent brigades to the European, Mediterranean, Middle East, and African theaters of war in World War I. Over one million Indian troops served overseas, of whom 62,000 died and another 67,000 were wounded. So these entries that Finzi wrote show the uh, global impact that this war had and the global cooperation amongst different nations to fight against the, the German forces. And with that, let's continue. October 25th. Mr. N. returned last night from Paris, armed with introductions to Lord Blank at Boulogne headquarters, where we are to go, and the information that the Paris hospitals are being steadily cleared. At this time we have had very little news. Since the fall of Antwerp on October 9th, and the beginning of the Ypres-Amontier battle two days later, we have had nothing but rumors to subsist on, and these alternately wildly optimistic and disquieting. It seems so strange to think, while wandering through the churches here, glorying in the leisure to enjoy the exquisite contour of the Gothic arches, the rich medieval windows, the Renaissance chapels, that to those enemies, who are proving themselves such utter vandals, we really owe so much of our knowledge of art and architecture. 
can any cultured being who has at some time or other associated with his art-loving foe studied his literature perused buchart delved into the depths of faust's philosophy and the heights of zarathustra's madness sat on brunhilde's rock or felt valkyrie riding past in the furious sweep of the snowstorm gazed from the heights of the black forest into the unknown stretch of sky beyond the blue hills with that yearning for beautiful things engendered by a land endowed by nature with every gift and descending into the darkening forest realized the milieu which inspired grimm's fairy tales and morgenstern and even the translators of ibsen and jacobson can such a being fail to be nonpulsed at this huge upheaval october twenty sixth train militaire we are passing through the lovely norman country at a snail's pace in a military train bearing french soldiers to the front their distant marseillaise sounds less hearty than our tommies it's a long way to tipperary but then they already know the devastation war has wrought in their homes they are the defenders of an invaded country the cost of our ticket to abancourt military rate for our uniform amongst the french receives the utmost consideration is one franc fifty centimes after abancourt it appears there are no trains to boulogne so how we are to get across the sixty intervening miles no man knows abancourt seven thirty p m we reached the neat little model village of abancourt at dusk it stands on a wind-swept plain over which the lowering clouds are scurrying menacingly this evening just as at avre market women offered us flowers for the blessed croix rouge so here the proprietor of the postcard shop insists on giving us pastilles de men to take on our journey you this is the nearest point we can get to boulogne and having knocked up the sleepy hotel-keeper at ten p m to obtain a night's lodging having made bovril for us all out of the tablet some good friend had thrust into my travelling kit and served out rations of horse-flesh sandwiches and nuts to make them savoury i have at last tumbled into my damp bed wrapped in a travelling rug a dismal rain has set in which brings to mind the words of the secretary at the rouen consulate when winter sets in the fighting must temporarily cease i know every inch of belgium know too that no attack can be made on country so sodden that every wheel sinks at least a yard into the ground believe me what the germans have they will hold at least this winter for belgium will be impregnable okay let's pause so in the october twenty fifth entry finzi mentions the fall of antwerp antwerp is a major belgian city and was the site of multiple sieges in history uh, the one named the fall of antwerp on wikipedia is actually from uh, fifteen eighty four during the eighty years war what Finzi is referring to is the 1914 siege of Antwerp, in which the city became the fallback point of the Belgian army after the defeat at Liege, another Belgian city. The siege of Antwerp lasted for 11 days, but the city was taken after heavy fighting by the German army, and the Belgians were forced to retreat westwards. Antwerp remained under German occupation until the armistice. Finzi also makes mention of the Ypres-Armentiers battle. As I mentioned earlier, the first battle of Ypres lasted from October 19th to November 22nd, 1914. It was fought on the Western Front around Ypres in West Flanders, Belgium. 
it is one of those things where there were battles within battles within battles and would probably take its own podcast to explain all the details in full. As it stands, it was one of the many conflicts that hung over Finzi and the other nurses in Boulogne as they treated soldiers and was just one of the many constant threats. In the October 26th diary entry, Finzi mentions the French soldiers singing La Marseillaise, which is the national anthem of France, written in 1792. She also mentions the English soldiers singing It's a Long Way to Tipperary, which was a Irish music hall song first performed in 1912, and it became a popular marching song among the soldiers during World War I. When Finzi and her group arrived at the hotel in Ooh, she mentions the hotel keeper making them bovril. Bovril is the trademark name of a thick and salty meat extract paste, similar to a yeast extract developed in the 1870s. I assume when Finzi refers to it, she is referring to the drink that you can make to it. She mentions having tablets of it. So what they did was they diluted the tablets with hot water and they called it beef tea. So that was a, a interesting find. So with that, let's continue. October 27th. We arose at 5 a.m. to catch a train bound towards Abbeville and, after a refreshing draught of black coffee in glasses, found ourselves installed in the train with the prospect of staying there till 5 p.m., if we had wondered at finding Eu well guarded on all sides, we no longer did so when we learned that only a few weeks back it was in enemy hands, and formed, in fact, the German headquarters on the march on Paris. Shortly before reaching Abbeville, a young Belgian soldier in the carriage next door put his head in to inquire politely whether we were some of the infirmerie anglais who had tended the Belgian wounded at Ostend. It appeared that he recognized Miss A., as soon as she doffed her ugly felt uniform hat, as the nurse who had dressed his wounded back the day he was carried into the casino hospital after the Battle of Termonde. His career, which he sketched delightfully for our edification, perched on the arm of the window-seat, had been eventful, to say the least of it. Aged seventeen, Ferdinand L. of Brussels, together with fifteen others of his school class of twenty, joined the ranks as volunteers and served through Namur, Captured by the Germans in a farmhouse where he was scouting, he contrived to escape and reach his native town, where the now famous burgomaster, the valiant Monsieur Max, got his papers visaed. By asserting that he was only fifteen years old, and therefore not liable to military service, he finally reached Cherbourg, and is now on his way back to the front, hoping to join some regiment at Calais. A charming boy, full of enthusiasm for the war and the conviction that we shall soon be marching into Berlin. His one regret, when he heard how the hospital equipment had to be abandoned to the enemy, was that he had not helped himself to a much-needed blanket. Had I but known, he exclaimed, I would have taken four. Fernand L. was clad in a wonderful combination of garments that he seemed to have gleaned on his journeyings. Most remarkable amongst them were the green-knitted socks, and a pair of canvas shoes which some good Samaritan had given him in Ostend, in those days when even the supply of anaesthetics was apt to run low. Proudest of all, he was, of the fact that he had once spent a few days in Liverpool to play in a football match, which fact, he felt, 
bound him to his allies more than any of the forced ties of war his companion a few years his senior who spoke several languages was a good-looking youth with a radiant smile they had been together through various escapades and were full of the atrocities of the germans which alas seem authentic enough once when they were fleeing they had come to a deserted village where a farmer gave them shelter his only daughter had been brutally mutilated and murdered before her own parents because in resisting the embraces of an officer she scratched out one of his eyes they cut off her breasts and carried away a foot as a trophy was the tale they told as they got out the belgians in token of gratitude pressed into our hands the little paper flags of the allies that they were wearing and buttons from their coats then seizing a notebook from my pocket fernand l inscribed their names and addresses at burg exacting at the same time promises that we would call and see them or their families on our way to the rhine in a few months the well-guarded lines the ammunition trains the big guns and horses and other paraphernalia of war how real it all begins to seem at abbeville where we explored the shops and camps and churches a nasty rumor came through via two cavalry officers that the germans are at calais and many of the townsfolk appeared at their doors to bewail their fate on leaving every place of beauty one wonders how long it will remain safe from the vandals one leaves it with a sentimental longing to linger for one last look okay let's pause so at the beginning of the century finzi mentions a belgian soldier who recognized her companion miss a he recognized her from the hospital after he was wounded in the battle of termond the battle of termond was a part of the siege of antwerp which i previously discussed this young soldier fernand l was 17 years old when he and finzi met she mentions that he talks about how he had served through Namur. Namur is 40 miles from Brussels, which is the capital of Belgium. Namur was a major target of the German invasion of Belgium in 1914, which sought to use the valley as a route into France. On August 21st, 1914, the Germans bombarded the town of Nimur without warning. Several people were killed, and despite being billed as virtually impregnable, the citadel fell after only three days fighting, and the town was occupied by the Germans for the rest of the war. Finzi mentions the now-famous Burgomaster or Mayor of Brussels, and this was Adolf Max who was appointed mayor in 1909. Under the German occupation of Brussels during World War I, Max refused to cooperate with the occupying forces. As a result, he was arrested in September of 1914 and held in, a, in captivity, first at Namur, and then in Poland, and then Germany, until he escaped on November 13, 1918. Okay, let's continue. October 27th. Boulogne. The sky was lurid red as our train steamed into Boulogne, and an evening mist hung over the town. On all sides high masts rose into the sky, hospital ships, ambulance trains, little fishing smacks. One does not know to which to give most attention. Everywhere the population of picturesque fisherfolk in their brown blouses gives way admiringly to the Red Cross ambulances and officials who carry on their work 
on such an enormous scale. The journey had seemed long enough in spite of its many incidents, as day by day we watched the petty though uninteresting fields slip by, or restlessly paced the stations during the interminable halts, with little food for thought, save vague surmises as to the future, and little to eat save the slightly bitter bread of the people and apples, the only things obtainable at wayside stations already ransacked by the hordes of hungry soldiers who had passed through earlier. And oftentimes we had been glad enough to descend from the carriages to refresh ourselves at the station pumps, marked drinkable or non-drinkable, as the case might be. We had formed an odd trio. The tall, bent figure of the clergyman, with his dreamy demeanour and utter obliviousness of all things practical. My commandant, a young woman who, having spent most of her life at hospital work, hailed every diversion from the same gleefully. Everything to her was new, for she had never been out of England before, and to a veteran traveller her joy at the ways of this new country was extraordinarily interesting. Thirdly, there was myself, fresh from the salutary discipline of the wards of a London hospital. And now it is all over, that journey. The destination is reached. The unknown will soon be revealed. The commissioner to whom we were directed received us with open arms. Nurses, thank God, was the exclamation, as we were turned over to the mercies of the billeting officer, who designated an airy room overlooking the quayside, on the third floor of the Red Cross headquarters, for our use. Yet it appears that in spite of the dearth of nurses there are many formalities to be gone through before we can begin work, and as only nurses who have had three years' training in a big London hospital are to be accepted, for is anything but the best good enough for our fighting men, there may be some difficulty for probationers. Thus, having deposited our bundles in our billet, we went to see Lady Blank at the hotel, where she combines the duties of lady-in-waiting to Queen Amelie of Portugal and organizer-in-chief of the Red Cross nurses. Here we learn for the first time of the confusion that arises out of the fact that both qualified nurses and members of the voluntary aid detachment are wearing the same uniform. We heard, too, of the difficulties experienced by the authorities to prevent unlicensed people organizing hospitals which they are unfitted to run. As we wended our way back wearily through the lighted, crowded streets teeming with life, Miss A., having signed a year's contract as a trained nurse, Something told me that this is to be the scene of my activities, too, that so long as my betrothed is in France, Providence will let me play my part. On returning to headquarters, we learned for the first time the unpleasant function of the censor. All letters have to be left open, posted in the military box, and, if they are to pass the censor, must contain no mention or description of places, troops, ships, people we have met on our journey, etc., it is not merely a precaution against spies, we are told, but a measure of prudence in regard to false rumours. For men who have never got farther than Boulogne, have never been within gunshot, have been known to write home long tirades about the bloody trenches in which they stand all day, dodging fragments of shell and killing Germans by the score. Okay, let's pause. So this was one of the most interesting things I learned while doing research. So Finzi mentions meeting a lady of lady in waiting of Queen Amelie of Portugal. Amelie of Orleans was the last queen consort of Portugal as the wife of King Carlos I. On February 1st, 1908, King Carlos was assassinated. Their son Manuel the, Manuel II only 18 was made king. 
However, on October 5th, 1910, he was deposed by a military coup. The entire royal family, including the Queen Dowager Amelie, fled the country and went, went into exile. Amelie lived most of her remaining life in France. While I was doing research, I found a website called theroyalarticles.com. It describes how, quote, The beginning of the First World War filled King Manuel with mixed feelings. On the one hand, he supported England, since England and Portugal were historical allies. On the other hand, his wife was German, and both his brother-in-laws were in German military service. Queen Amelie wisely advised her son only to get involved in the humanitarian part of the conflict, which he did. Soon after the war started, Queen Amelie visited France, her native country, to see the atrocities for herself. The visit made a huge impression on her, and she started helping out in several hospitals in Britain. So, uh, Finzi mentions meeting a woman who worked as both one of Queen Amelie's ladies-in-waiting and as the organizer-in-chief of the Red Cross nurses in Boulogne. So that was a pretty neat fact to learn about this woman who first her her husband was killed right in front of her, and then her uh, son was, uh, you know, the, cooed, cooed by their people, and they had to flee, and, and she still put in the effort to to help her home country of France and, and help the help the people in the war. So that was pretty neat to learn. Okay, let's continue. So Finzi mentions the voluntary aid detachment and the confusion that uh, showed up because both they and the qualified nurses were wearing the same uniform. So the Voluntary Aid Detachment, or the VAD, was a voluntary unit of civilians providing nursing care for military personnel in the United Kingdom and various other countries in the British Empire, especially during World Wars I and II. Although VADs were a part of the war effort, they were not military nurses as they were not under the control of the military. The VAD system was founded in 1909 with the help of the British Red Cross and the Order of St. John. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the British Red Cross and the Order of St. John had, had joined forces to form the Joint War Organization during World War II in order to not duplicate efforts in uh, developing overseas hospitals. As war broke out, the British Red Cross was reluctant to allow the civilian women of the VAD a role in overseas hospitals. Most volunteers were of middle and upper classes, and they were unaccustomed to the hardships of overseas life and the traditional hospital discipline. Military authorities would not accept the VADs at the front line. And I'll discuss more about the integration of the VAD uh, into the military hospital's rank and, and order in later episodes as Finzi, as Finzi mentions them. Okay, let's continue. October 28th. After breakfast this morning, we set out to see whether there were any letters from home at the consulate. On our way up the hill, a funeral overtook us. There were four hearses and seven coffins, each covered with a Union Jack, which contrasted strangely with the weird-shaped French funeral carriages, 
and the drivers in costumes like beetles with large three-cornered hats. We followed the cortege a quarter of an hour up the hill to the cemetery, where the newly consecrated ground was full of freshly covered graves. The coffins were soon lowered, and as they lay there in a row not an eye in the little group of onlookers was dry. The R.A.M.C. pallbearers, the chaplain who went through the service with a rapidity that showed his familiarity with the job, a handful of French peasants, that was all, and they laid them to rest at the top of the hill, and only two English nurses who never saw them could bear the message of their last resting place to their homes. God, that such wanton destruction should be! Opposite our window, as I write, the ambulance men are deftly unloading a train and carrying their sad, still burdens aboard the hospital ship on which Miss A. crossed from Ostend. All day long, all night long, the wagons come and go. Funerals pass, not one, but three, four, five at a time, followed by orderlies, turbaned Sikhs and Gurkhas, looking quaintly odd with their unaccustomed shirts, gifts, no doubt, from some willing helpers at home, hanging loose below their coats, like a flounced skirt, and creating a perfect sensation whenever they pass the simple peasant folk. Later we walked to Wimaru and took snapshots of the wounded Tommies who thronged the beach. They were mostly arm-and-leg cases, and a cheery, if rough-looking, lot too, in their bedraggled khaki, which, from the distance, was scarcely distinguishable from the sands. The Reverend E. N. has found plenty to do, and is already taking work out of the overtaxed bishop's hands. I, in the meantime, am making the best of my leisure and enjoying every hour of the sunshine. Father N., as we call the padre, got into conversation with an army veteran today at lunch, whose views were interesting. "'Do you think the Germans will get to Calais?' he asked. "'Probably not. But if they do, they'll make for here. This is the place they're after, as a post for their submarines, and heaven knows what we shall do with our stores. It won't be possible to get them away in time.' About a mile along the quay we came upon the debris of a camp with the fire still burning, piles of reaping machines, traction engines and carts, all bearing the names of English firms from Manchester to Crouch End, lay alongside, and, finally, in the distance, there hove in sight the French refugee ship which was blown up in the channel yesterday, between here and Folkestone. In the evening we joined a group of nurses round the fire. They are pleasant girls just down from Paris where they did relieving work at some of the hotel hospitals. The Astoria, in particular, they describe as a maze. You go to get a drink of milk for a patient, and when you've found the milk you've lost your man and may hunt for hours, only to find in the end that his need has already been supplied, they say. Their assistants were culled from the French nobility, whose unflagging efforts to help are typical of France's indomitable spirit. Amusing incidents often occur. One doctor, on being much pressed, accepted an invitation to tea with a well-known aristocratic family, who assured him they were inviting people who would be of especial interest to him. His amusement on arriving may be pictured when he found that the other guests consisted of a roomful of wounded Tommies. Another doctor, overwhelmed by the amount of titles to which he had been introduced, meeting a nurse in the corridor, began warily with, "'Look here, I say. Now, are you a blooming princess? Before he gave his orders. In spite of the wonderful dirt and bad drainage that reigns in the nurses' quarters, we must be grateful, they say, for our accommodation. Nurses aren't expected to require much, it seems. 
someone quoted the old chestnut from punch of the lady who on being asked by the newly arrived nurse in which room she was to sleep exclaimed in blank amazement oh but i thought you were a trained hospital nurse okay let's pause so finzi talks about observing multiple funerals while in boulogne until june 1918 the dead from the hospitals at boulogne were buried in the east in the east cemetery the commonwealth graves forming a long narrow strip along the right hand edge of the cemetery in the spring of 1918, it was found that space was running short in the cemetery in spite of repeated extensions to the south, so a new cemetery site uh, had to be found. She also mentions walking to Wimereau, which is a coastal town about three miles, three miles north of Boulogne. Both Boulogne and Wimereau formed an important hospital center during the war. Next, Finzi mentions the old chestnut, or joke, from Punch magazine about nurses at the front. Punch was a humor and satire magazine that ran from 1841 to 2002. It was renowned internationally for its wit and irreverence, and it introduced the term cartoon as we know it today. Okay, let's continue. October 29th. Let me tell the tale of Number Blank Stationary Hospital. It should go down to posterity as a memorial of what British resourcefulness may achieve, even if its existence was the outcome of the proverbial British state of unpreparedness. For what in the annals of history has equaled the holocaust and chaos of modern warfare, of which there was no precedent, of which everything has had to be learned by the bitterest experience? Three days before we left England, at the beginning of the fight for Calais, which continues to grow more violent daily, a certain Major N. found himself in charge of the wounded who were being brought down by the thousand in trains and left helpless on their stretchers by the quayside to await the arrival of the ever-busy hospital ships. Already the C. and I. hotels were chock-a-block with wounded, who lay so close together in the corridors that it was necessary to climb over one stretcher to reach the next patient, and often to stand astride the pallets to dress the wounds. The casino was opened, but in less time than it takes to tell was as crowded as the others. A disused sugar-shed, a vast wooden barn whose cracked cement floor is piled high with dust, whose smashed glass roofing is besmirched with dirt, is hardly an ideal site for a hospital, but it is the best thing to hand, and the Major commandeered it, and here, before the lumber had been cleared, before the glass had been repaired, or the walls whitewashed, the wounded began to tumble in. It wasn't much of a place, but it was out of the torrential rain which had set in, and bade fair to continue, and it was less cold than the open air. By day and night the orderlies worked, alternately preparing the place and attending to the wounded. A solitary English girl who happened to be on the spot had volunteered her services, and was doing her best single-handed in the wards. One day the Major, walking on the quay, saw some Red Cross nurses. They were the identical ones we had met on their arrival from Paris. On hearing they were waiting for their orders, and that they were all qualified women, he commandeered them, even as he had commandeered his barn. Back they came to headquarters to fetch more assistance. "'Why don't you come too? It's a case of all hands aboard,' said one. It was thus that I came to work at the first clearing station at the base. Such was the stationary hospital when— 
laden with all the loaves we could carry to supplement the ration biscuits, we set to work in the casualty ward this afternoon. For the thousand wounded likely to come through daily, there are six fully trained nurses and myself, besides the male staff of RAMC doctors and orderlies, and two or three Red Cross surgeons and lady doctors. Ten beds and a number of sacks of straw form the main equipment. Planks, supported by two packing cases, are the dressing table. At one end men are engaged in putting in three extempore baths, others whitewashing the walls. A boatload had just left for England as I came in, and we proceeded to get a meal for those who remained. But it was a struggle to get sufficient tea out of the orderlies, who had been working all night and were dead beat. The men's delight at the bread and old newspapers we had brought in was incredible. Those who were able to clustered round the solitary stove in the centre. Great, rough, bearded fellows, covered with mud from the trenches in which they have lived for weeks. How different they look from those who set out. The worst cases lay on their stretchers as they had arrived. One said simply, as I took him his tea, This is heaven, sister. A tall, dark man entered. The C.O., someone said. Take those two Germans down to the boat, I heard him order. Then, turning to us, "'You'd better come to our mess-room and get some tea yourselves,' he said. Four trainloads are expected in shortly.' We trooped into the small sanctum, dignified by the name of mess-room, where the major's orderly was busy preparing tea on a primus stove. There was no milk, but the bitter black beverage out of the large tin mugs was welcome nonetheless. Someone had secured a cake that we cut with a sword as the cleanest thing present." Next to the mess-room are the officers' quarters, into which we were privileged to take one glance. Small, whitewashed cubicles, furnished with a camp-bed, a shaving-glass about three inches by six inches in size, and an old sugar-box converted into a washstand. Tea finished, we set to work to get beds, ready for the next batch, the first of the four trainloads expected. Ten bedsteads for a thousand men. It sounds almost incredible, but it is nevertheless true and although we are told that more are expected at any moment, we have only wooden pallets at present and a limited supply of blankets. One to lie on, two for cover. A coat for a pillow was the order of the day until a pile of mattresses came in. October 30th. We worked till midnight and were on duty by 7.30 this morning. From our billets to the hospital is nearly half an hour's walk, which, over the rough cobblestones in the blinding rain, is hardly attractive. At any rate, it has the advantage of clearing the haunting smell of the gas gangrene out of our nostrils. As we came on duty this morning, laden with every old journal we could find, a huge, burly Scotsman let himself down from the ambulance train. We gave him a newspaper, but he was inclined to talk. He is the first man I've met so far who has signified his longing to get back to the firing line. "'Well, I've got a limb left,' he said. "'I should like to have a pot at the Germans.' and I can fire my machine as well with two fingers as with five, if they let me. The cause of his indignation was the mutilated corpse of a Red Cross nurse they had found in a little village where the Germans had been. God knows how far they dragged her round with them, but she was horribly mutilated, he said with a shiver. I'm a big man, but our major was bigger, yet neither of us could help choking. And can ye wonder we want to get at him again? The worst part of the wounds is the fearful sepsis and impossibility of getting them anything like clean. First time I've had my boots off for seven weeks is the kind of exclamation that recurs all day, 
as we literally cut them off. Hardly any of the boots have been off for three weeks, with the result that they seem glued on, whilst the feet are like iron, the nails like claws. Some of the men have not had their wounds dressed since the first field dressing was applied, for the simple reason that the rush on the hospital trains makes it impossible to attend to any but the worst cases, many of whom, as it is, are dying of hemorrhage, accelerated by the jolting on the journey. There is no time to do anything but the dressings, and if we did want to wash the patients, there is nothing but the red handkerchiefs we hang round the lights for shades by night, for towels by day. Water, especially boiling water, is at a premium, as it has to be fetched from outside where the veteran cook stokes hard all day in the driving rain, ladling us out a modicum into each bowl from his cauldrons. I never thought to see such sights, exclaimed a nurse of thirty years' experience as a new trainload came in, but we have no time to think of our own sensations. Fingerless hands, lungs pierced, arms and legs pretty well gangrenous, others already threatening tetanus, against which they are now beginning to inoculate patients, mouths swollen beyond all recognition with bullet shots, fractured femurs, shattered jaws, sightless eyes, ugly scalp wounds, yet never a murmur, never a groan except in sleep. As the men come in they fall on their pallets and doze, until roused for food. A few are enraged to madness at the sight of a German. "'They fired on our Red Cross!' they cry. "'Burnt every man alive! Why do we treat them so well?' Quite a number of prisoners who have been taken near Lille were brought into the clearing station this morning. Being the only linguist present, I was installed as interpreter. They were in a horrible state of nerves, and asked when they were likely to be killed. One of them was nastily peppered about the heart with shrapnel, and asked, "'When will I be shot?' I explained whilst dressing his wounds that Britain is a civilized country, and, in contrast to the Huns, does not hit a man when he is down. Never shall I forget the look of relief on the man's face. "'They told us we'd be tortured if you got us,' he exclaimed. Later on I was asked to send a card to his mother. It was difficult to know what to say, but your son, though a prisoner and wounded, is safe and being well cared for, seemed to meet the occasion. Suddenly, without a word, he seized the scissors from my belt. Recalling tales of vindictive prisoners, I stepped back. The precaution was unnecessary, for the little Hun was only cutting a button off his coat pocket. Here, Sie haben ja nichts genommen. Here, you haven't taken anything he exclaimed, Teuton boorishness veiling the kindliness as he handed me the souvenir. A strangely human incident occurred a little later. A group of Tommies were watching a Bosch having a bayoneted hand dressed. He spoke quite good English, but was apparently too frightened to answer any of their sallies. Presently, however, he turned to me with a request that he might be allowed to send a line to his wife to say he was alive. "'Easy young to have a wife, sister,' suggested a lame man the maintenance of whose large family apparently proved a burden to him. "'How old are yer? You?' he added, addressing the prisoner. The Hun pulled out an old letter-case and abstracted the portrait of a pretty, English-looking girl in a garden arbor. "'My wife,' he exclaimed. "'She has seventeen years. I nineteen. We was married two days when I came away.' In a moment the hostile crowd round him was turned to one of sympathizers. Poor beggar! After all, he probably doesn't want to fight any more than we do, said the lame man. No, replied the prisoner, 
and all the racial antagonism of saxon versus prussian showed itself in his words we saxons not want war we want peace but they not ask us okay let's pause so at the beginning of this uh section finzi mentions the c and i hotels their full names weren't given i guess for secrecy or just information uh safety so i tried to figure out uh which ones they were but just with some brief digging the one might be hotel crystal in boulogne but i couldn't find a lot of information and I, it would take more time to uh kind of dig into that but just it was interesting to um see her uh not give the full names to protect the the privacy and i guess the safety of uh the information there Later, Finzi talks about acting as an interpreter for German prisoners taken near Lille. Lille is a city in northern France in French Flanders on the border of Belgium. It was occupied by German forces beginning on October 13th, 1914. Okay, let's continue. October 31st. Who could believe? had they not seen for themselves the manifold horrors of war, the vermin against which there is no coping, vermin that in ordinary times one never saw. The men are alive with them, so are we, a fact which necessitates a tremendous search at every available opportunity. Even amputated limbs are found to be crawling. The girl who was working single-handed in this barn until we arrived was walking along the quay yesterday when a feeble voice called her from a stretcher. It was her brother. He died in the night, but she is on duty all the same. All day long the rush continues. The question, shrapnel or bullet, rings incessantly in our ears as each man comes up to get his dressing done. One boy of nineteen had no fewer than six bullet wounds in one arm and two in each leg. It took two of us an hour to dress his wounds, and afterwards, as I washed his beardless face in response to a gentle request, I could scarce refrain from sending up a prayer of gratitude that my own brothers are dead and not mutilated like these boys. Towards sunset I was called to the side of a youthful Saxon, already rigid with tetanus. Through his clenched teeth he could still groan to the orderly's command to lie still. Ich kann nicht stilllegen. I cannot lie still. At seven o'clock, after nearly twelve hours' work, we went home to dinner, and— it being our turn to take night shift, we're back again at our posts, with clean aprons and a satisfied inner man, two hours later. The orderly officer called for any who had not yet had their second anti-typhoid injection, and I, being one of them, was injected on the spot. During the long night, as we hurried from patient to patient, in the darkened, cry-haunted ward, covering the restless sleeping figures, moving them into more comfortable positions, with a prayer for each one's mother, I could screw up no feeling of resentment towards the dying Saxon boy, in spite of the cries of our men, but only against that vile Prussianism that brought up its children to regard rapine and slaughter as a divine necessity. By midnight things were quiet enough to allow us to cut up dressings as best we might. By this time, owing to there not being a chair in the place, I confess my legs were almost giving way. Moreover, the injection took speedy effect and a stiffening arm and rising temperature did not facilitate work of this kind. 
frankly i do not think any of us will ever be as busy again and our one prayer was for strength to carry on many of the men were tormented by coughs that kept the others awake all we had to give them was lukewarm water and rinsings of a condensed milk can for euphony we call it milk those who could not sleep for vermin lit cigarette after cigarette until their supply ran out at two a m we retired to the nurse's bunk a whitewashed rat-ridden ill-smelling partitioned compartment whose sole furniture consisted of two shelves until someone was inspired to fetch the dressing-table two empty boxes oh joy of joys upon which we took it in turns to sit and a coke fire on which we boiled eggs for our midnight meal halfway through my egg the orderly called me the prisoner can't last much longer will you come and speak to him sister it seemed as if the ward were one huge battlefield for cries greeted me on all sides get at em lads shouted the burly scot in the corner as he urged forward his comrades in his sleep christ help us groaned an armless dragoon coming round from the anaesthetic i soothed the dying german as best i could when the awful spasms came and through his clenched teeth he signified the pain in the crutz small of the back what could i say but guter junge bleib still es dauert nicht mehr lange good boy lie still it will not last long now with his remaining hand he pressed mine as i wiped the pouring sweat from his brow after all suffering is a great leveller the orderly an old south african campaigner looked at the light that began to flood the sky they usually go west at this hour he remarked grimly with a shudder i shuddered too the place was alive with spirits for a moment we seemed to hear the sigh of the departing feel the rushing of many wings as they brushed past then a gaunt muffled figure appeared at the door bearing a lantern for all the world like a hoary figure of time and we awoke to reality i've brought down a trainload he said a round dozen of them are urgent cases and must have beds perforce we had to shift the sleeping forms on to the concrete floor all bruised and torn and bleeding though they were cutting short their all too short rest an officer was brought in wounded in the abdomen but cheerfully talking of getting home he too passed away before eight o'clock from the nursing point of view the work is most unsatisfactory as disinfectants to say nothing of dressings are continually at low ebb Today the iodine ran out one of the surgeons came round and signified his intention to dress a bad femur case i had got together what things i could when he called for iodine there being none to be had he signed resignedly and with then we will leave the dressings for the present walked off only to return an hour later with a quantity he had found in the town of course there can be no attempt at asepsis in a place so ill-ventilated or rather not ventilated at all for there are no side windows and although the skylight is sufficient for lighting purposes the ventilation is effected by means of the excessively draughty entrances it is distinctly unhealthy and the odors in the place are indescribable and never to be forgotten there is no lavatory accommodation although latrines are situated along the quay whither the blind are led by the armless the lame carried on orderlies backs refuse of all sorts that cannot be burned in the incinerator is disposed of in the sea 
and it is good to note that the sacks of straw are being gradually replaced by real beds, and the supply of blankets is greatly augmented. Unsatisfactory, too, from the nursing point of view, is the fact that the men pass through the clearing stations so rapidly that we seldom do the same dressing twice, and though there are days when, owing to rough seas or overladen boats, we are able to watch the progress of the patients, for the most part it is only the immovable cases that remain, and the rest are hurried through, leaving one wondering how they will get on. Did I say hurried through? There is no need to hurry the men who are to go home, for no sooner is a boat announced than a general scramble ensues, and they would leave their breakfast, clothing, even their treasured trophies behind, in order not to be late. Just a bit of ohm, and we'll be twice as strong for the next bit of fighting, they say. There follows the inspection of labels, for each man is labeled for his destination, blue for England, yellow for Havre, white for convalescent depot, and sad indeed are the faces of those to whom the medical officer has not vouchsafed the coveted blue ticket. Just as day dawned, with a last spasm, more awful than the others, the little Saxon prisoner died. As his close-clenched jaws relaxed, the orderly remarked, Not bad looking for a corpse, sister. Must have been a pretty child. I asked for his corpse number, but it was not to be found. In my heart I wished the boy's mother could have known he died well cared for. It is all very primitive. We have no screens to hide what once was mortal from the others. We came off duty at 10 a.m., just as another batch of 1,100 men began to arrive, and on our way home caught a glimpse of K. of K., who is paying an incognito visit as he stepped from a destroyer. End of chapter 1 Okay, that's the end of chapter 1. In this last section, Finzi mentions speaking with an old South African campaigner. This is most likely a reference to the Second Boer War, which was a conflict fought between the British Empire and the two Boer republics over the empire's influence in southern Africa from 1899 to 1902. Finally, Finzi, at the end of this chapter, mentions seeing K of K, as he stepped off a ship for an incognito visit. K of K is Earl Herbert Kitchener, who I discussed last episode. He was Britain's Secretary of State for War, and he had organized the large volunteer army for Britain. All right, that wraps up the first chapter of 18 Months in the War Zone. Uh, the episode is probably going to be a little long, but it will honestly be one of the it's one of the shorter chapters since it starts near the end of October and uh, runs till the 31st versus the later chapters which are entire months in length for diary entries so wanted to push through and get this first chapter out and uh, get all that information out there so again I apologize for the big gap between episodes just been kind of crazy with life recently so but I still want to keep pushing with this and, and I'm having fun uh, researching and uh, learning new things so it's been exciting. I think one of the most interesting parts of this is finding the little hints and tidbits that Finzi provides about her own personal life. She doesn't you know sit down and give her her whole whole biographical history right but from the little we've seen so far we know she's a veteran traveler. She knows at least French and German. She acts as an interpreter for 
her companions when they're traveling through France to get to their destination, and then she acts as an interpreter for the German uh, soldiers who were captured and taken prisoner. Um, she mentions being uh, fresh from hospital discipline work, so to me that means she's put in the years as a nurse training and is now gone off to put those skills to use on the front lines. We also know that she was engaged at this point. Uh, she mentions that while her betrothed is in France, so will she be, basically. So her fiancé at this point was Alexander Gilmore, of, assuming she was engaged to the same man she married after the war. But uh, he was uh, of the 7th Northamptonshire Fusiliers, which was a British infantry regiment. We also know at this point that two of her brothers had passed away, her brother Douglas in 1912 and her brother Felix in 1913. Her brother Edgar, who would eventually uh, join the RAF, um, he was too young uh, to join at this point. He would have only been 16 in 1914. And her youngest brother, uh, Gerald, um, would have definitely have been too young to, to join, so she was saying that she was grateful that none of her brothers had uh, had to experience any of the atrocities that she had seen so far. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I have a website, thosedayswillneverreturn.com. I'm going to try to keep posting uh, links and interesting things I find. Um, as I was doing research, I found, you know, the, the online archive for Punch Magazine and, and all of their cool you know, satirical cartoons that they had published during the First World War and, and you know, in other eras. And um, things like the songs that the people sang and, and stuff like that. Any other information, any other interesting information I find that uh, would be better to be seen versus heard over a podcast. Uh, I'll try to add all that in there just for some extra supplemental stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to keep that going. Um, I think right now... As of this episode, I will try to get all of the episode 3 links up, and I will uh, hopefully have this episode posted soon. So, yeah. I hope you all have a great day. Um, Oh, if you're interested in messaging me, you can do that on Instagram at thosedayswillneverreturn, or at those days will never return at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments or concerns or anything you just want to chat about, those are the best ways to reach me. All right, have a wonderful day and I'll see you next time.